0: And when I talk about obesity, and I think about this, a lot of people are like, oh, you need to eat less, move more. Like, okay, if that is helpful, that would have worked, right? All right, well, welcome back, everybody, to episode 17 of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking about a slightly controversial Article that came out, although it really shouldn't be, that's kind of the spoiler of it. Um, but a big clinical practice guidelines released by the American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP, talking about obesity in children and adolescents and essentially how we look at it, how we work it up, how we treat it, all that stuff, made a bunch of ripples across social media. So I figured I'd go over it here. So we're kind of going to go through the general gist of it, the outline of it, kind of the topics. Um, Going to cover a lot of topics about obesity in general, which will be really transferable to not only youth and adolescents, but to adults as well. And then we'll kind of talk about what's been going on. So let's go, let's dive in, we'll kind of talk all about it here. And so, first things first, this is like a hundred page document. So, a clinical practice guideline essentially a group gets together. So it's usually, you know, a bunch of people and then a specific society. This one's the AAP and they kind of get together. They do a huge lit review. They look at all the literature and they say, okay, we want to get this huge compendium, this huge document of how can we help people dealing with, you know, a specific issue, whether it's pediatric hypertension or, you know, diabetes or whatever. This is specifically pediatric and adolescent obesity and kind of how we think about that. So a a clinical practice guideline is a pretty exhaustive you know reference for someone if you look at these you know like i said this is a hundred pages including references and stuff so there's just hundreds of references so there's tons and tons of stuff to learn from this which is super cool and so this is a really really good place to start if you want to get a really good overview on a topic like a clinical practice guideline is a really good place to start and also it's like the formal stance of that society so that's what we're looking at here when we talk about what is a clinical practice guideline that's what we're looking at here and so we're going to dive in a little deeper now All right, so first and foremost, we're gonna talk a little bit about, you know, what's been going on with this. Like I said, very stigmatized. People uh, are very charged. Anytime you talk about obesity in general, whether it's in adults or in kids, but obviously when it's with our children and kids, uh, people become very, very charged with this. This is a very stigmatized topic. I'm gonna try to step back there and present, you know, kind of a hopefully a pretty balanced opinion on this and kind of a nuanced take and because that's really what it's going to come down to it has to be a nuanced picture Um, but I want to try to take the stigma out of it and just talk about the science behind it and how we think about how we deal with it because at the end of the day it's all about helping people right I don't really care you know, what someone wants to call something, what someone doesn't, if we're helping people, like that's ultimately my goal here, right? So when I think about it as a clinician or as a physician, my goal is to how do I transfer the knowledge that I just read to helping people? And, you know, I don't think Twitter arguments are helping people. And so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not really worried about the junk here. I want to, you know, get around that and figure out how can I help people, you know, either learn information or implement their lives to make their lives better. So that's the first and foremost, most important thing for me. On top of that, I kind of want to just overall, and just get it out there and say like, the framework of obesity in this country, like we need to change the way we think about it. And I've been guilty of this for a long time. I've changed my view on this, you know, over the last couple of years as I've learned more and more. You know, back in the day, you know, it was thought that obesity is a moral failure, meaning that, hey, that person just lacks the willpower to do, you know, whatever needs to be done to lose weight. And, I know people will say like, well, calories in, calories out. Like, yes, that is true. I'm not saying calories in, calories out is not true. Like, I mean, I understand that from a biochemical perspective. Like, that is true. But what I'm saying is it's it's much, much, much more nuanced than that. You know, everyone wants to say like, it's a moral failure for that person not to be able to do that. Moral failure meaning like they're not working hard enough. They're not eating well enough. They're not doing whatever. You know, it's their fault. It's their fault. And at the end of the day, is there personal accountability? Always. There's always personal accountability in everything that we do and that we choose. But I just want to like hopefully bring that idea up to you that like, the DAC is not stuck the same for every single person. So when you think about it, you know, if you have, you know, a certain set of genes, first and foremost, and an environment that makes things easier for you to adhere to, you know, that's how it works. Let's let's just, I want to paint a picture for you. Let's say you are someone who lives in inner city, right? Let's say you have your low income, maybe low socioeconomic status. So you have no means of transportation, you have no nearby grocery stores, so you can't get to that, all you have is convenience stores close by, you have, you know, a lower level of education, nobody in your family is educated, everyone in your family um, has obesity, and all these things there, you know, and that person right there, that's going to be a really, really challenging time, going to have a hard time to eat well, to get exercise, to understand what they need to do to, you know, kind of prevent or treat obesity whereas let's take the other side of things where someone who lives in the suburbs has access to fresh fruits and vegetables a big grocery store has plenty of green space to walk you know walk around to, to work on is highly educated has lots of good role models and examples around them of what a healthy diet should look like you know that person in the suburbs or you know whatever position you want to be in, like that person probably has a better chance of overcoming obesity than the person in the inner city like i said i'm not saying it's black and white like they can or they can't but i'm just saying think about stacking the deck right so that's what we're looking at here and when i talk about obesity and i think about this a lot of people are like oh you need to eat less move more like okay if that is helpful that would have worked right you know people say that all the time like well if only they did this like okay we've been talking about that for you know decades at this point decades talking about that and we're here and so i will get it out there in the open and say yes lifestyle intervention is a hundred percent what we should be doing first line in this document they say that multiple times that doing physical activity eating well and whole style lifestyle changes are the first line treatment for anything related to obesity and overweight, like period point blank. That's where I'm going to go. But on top of that, you know, we talk about what are some additional things we can do, because at the end of the day, if we just harp on lifestyle all day, all day, all day, like lifestyle, 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 that's all that matters, but nothing's getting done. Then like, we need to figure out what we can do to help these people. Cause like I said, it might not be the best way, you know, it might not be, you know, quote unquote best for you or more natural or whatever. But like, if the options are just continue to bang our head against a wall and try to do this lifestyle thing and get nowhere or maybe try some other means and have you know help somebody then that's the route i'm going to take every single time of the day so that's like my mini soapbox already i'll probably rant about it again later but like for me like i said all i care about is helping people in the way that's best for them if for someone that is just doing lifestyle and exercise and whatever awesome that's fantastic i can get out bored if someone says that is not a sustainable thing for me jordan i can't do that. Then. I'm not going to say and say, sorry, can't help you. Cause I just don't think that's right. I think those people deserve help and care as well. And so I have to figure out a way to kind of help them. So that's really like what I want to see on that. Like I said, we'll get into it here. This is a very complex topic. It is just not as easy as calories in calories out. Although yes, once again, I recognize that we're going to just say, um, it's, the math is there, but like it is a much much more complex thing than that. So we're going to dive in a little more now. And so let's talk a couple of diagnoses. You know, how do we diagnose or define obesity? And you know, in terms of terms, just I'm going to kind of you'll hear me talk about it. I'll talk about you know instead of saying someone is obese, we'll say someone has obesity or has overweight. Uh, we kind of found that the new language kind of takes it away from making it feel like it's a person, uh, you know, their identity. Saying like oh an obese person, you know, like that's not their identity. You know, they have obesity someone who has hypertension or diabetes doesn't say like that person is diabetes or is hypertension like no like the person has that medical condition so we're kind of shifting our frame of, of mind and think hey this person has this medical condition and that's going to talk about it so you'll hear me talk about that as well you might be like man that guy's really bad at grammar but no that seems to be the way we're going with it in the conversation um, and the topics that we talk about so to be defined as overweight we're gonna have a bmi greater than the 85th percentile but below the 95th and once again this is for child and adolescents. so adult a uh, whole separate topic i talked about that and how we measure it before but for children you know measure a bmi obviously bmi like i said we talked about it before there's good and bad to bmi but this is generally how i do it you know when a kid comes in for their well visit we get their height and weight and we get the bmi just so we can kind of get a, a tracking on that but let's an overweight somewhere between 85 and 95th percentile obesity then would be 95th percentile or above and then severe obesity is equal to or more than 120 percent above the 95th percentile so that's going to include some math um, but once again just kind of ballpark in there you know 85 to 95 overweight 95 is obese. Severe obesity is more than equal to or more than 120% of the 95th percentile. And then let's say you have like an older adolescent, someone who's like, you know, 15, 16, 17, you know, something like that. And they're, you know, like an, a human size, then you can use the, the regular human, you know, definition of that, which would be a BMI above 30. So these are the general definitions we're going to use except for pediatrics and adolescents, a little different, but that's what we're working with. Okay, now we're going to go into the causes and risk factors of obesity. Like there are tons and tons of them. This clinical document, I mean, it went for just absolute pages and pages of what risk factors were. So obviously lots of complex issues here. Lots of things are going to work, you know, additively, meaning, you know, this and this and this can lead to more risk. And it's not just like this is the one thing that I had and that's what caused, you know, this issue to arise it's usually much more nuanced than that so there's a bunch of different ones we're talking about first thing we're going to talk about is something called aces or trauma aces means adverse child events so essentially what we're talking about is something happened in your life a lot of times this is like a trauma or you know it's some sort of traumatic event and we've been finding that people who have or children who have these You know, events that go on early in life, they tend to have lots of issues later in life because of that. You know, the question is, is it because of that? You can't necessarily show causation, but we just tend to see an association with people who have these traumatic events with, you know, a lot of poor health outcomes. So that's one thing that we've seen that seems to be connected is um, a higher risk of obesity if you have, you know, ACEs or trauma in a childhood. Other things are social determinants to help. So things I'm gonna read off here, talking about poverty, living in an underserved area, your school, your neighborhood, transportation, cost, your heritage, you know, all these things are gonna play a factor in this. Like I said, let's say from a poverty perspective, we've kind of touched on that, you know, if you don't have access to, you know, the ability to buy good food or healthy food, you don't have transportation, you can't get around, you live in the middle of a city, you have no safe spot for you to go out and exercise, you know, you have no way to get around, no transportation. Um, let's say heritage-wise, let's say you're, you know, it seems to be that people of African-American or Mexican-American or Latin-American um, descent tend to have a higher prevalence of obesity as well. And so lots and lots of different factors can can play a factor into that. Additionally, there are some chemicals that are thought to be potential endocrine disruptors you know that's kind of a whole different podcast topic but some you know endocrine disruptors things like bisphenol a might play some role it's not as super linked but there's some papers out there that show there Another thing is your family, right? Your family's going to play a huge role in your chance for developing obesity. If you think about your family, like I said, not only from a genetic perspective, we'll get into that a little bit later, but, you know, in just terms of their lifestyle, their habits, your home setup, their preferences, you know, if if they're eating, you know, a a standard American diet at home, odds are the child's going to be eating that as well. And so that's a huge disadvantage in terms of a big risk factor for, you know, going in there. Parents who are more more obese tend to have, um, you know, a higher chance of having children who have obesity. Um, And so all those different things, you know, they don't have a, a history of working out. You know, nobody works out in the family. All these things, like, you know, what you're modeled at home a lot of times is what you become. And so it's not a definitive, you are going to be this because of that. But once again, just kind of an association that we see. Additionally, we can't talk about this so without talking about food. It seems to be a high, you know, correlation between lots of fast food, sugar sweetened beverages. Those are like the two ones they harp out all the time, saying that there's a pretty high correlation between an increased consumption in sugar sweetened beverages and fast food and childhood obesity. Also, they talk about potential screen time and like, you know, looking at phones, iPads, TV, maybe there's a correlation with that. Not sure that was not very strong at all. And then also physical activity, you know, in when there's higher levels of sedentary behavior, that tends to lead to an increased risk of obesity as well. So like I said, there's a lot of them, a lot of things there. And I can't cover nearly, I didn't even cover all of them because I was like, there's just too many, but those are kind of the big things. So just, I want to paint this picture that this is a very complex topic and that all these little things could be adding up to kind of increasing someone's risk for uh, having obesity. All right, moving on. Now we're going to talk about genetics, which is also a little bit controversial. Everything's controversial, you know, but this is a little controversial because when people hear genetics, they think, oh, they're just blaming know having obesity on their genetics like that's that's all they're doing and i'm gonna tell you right now that's not what we're doing and that's not what they're doing it's much more complicated than that you know when i think about gene inheritance there's a couple ways to think about you know two big things are either monogenic or polygenic mono meaning like hey this is the gene we've gotten from their parents like we see that and that's causing their obesity there are some instances of that it's very very rare though the vast majority of times we're dealing with a polygenic you know type situation which means you know there's multiple genetic factors that could be influencing them and so Most of the time, it's multifactorial, multi-genes. You know, there's lots of things going on. So it's not just, we're not saying, hey, oh, it's your genetics that's causing it. so another saying that I've heard as well is that genetics, you know, essentially you know, load the gun and then the environment, pull the trigger. So that kind of sounds weird. Like, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, what it means is, you know, if you have your genetic predisposition, meaning you have certain genes that make you a little predisposed to maybe gaining weight and and also you get placed in the wrong environment, and that's going to kind of push you over the edge. So if you think about it, if you have two people in the same environment, let's say just person A has a, you know, quote unquote, Perfect genetic makeup, meaning like they don't have any risk factors or influence on on having obesity. Whereas person B tends to have multiple, you know, polygenic distribution of an increased risk of obesity. You put them in, you know, a perfect environment. Perfect environment, meaning like we count their calories, they get exactly what they need. Then they're going to be, you know, normal body weight. That's we're not going to gain weight. That's just kind of how it works. But you put them in a free living environment, or like what we have every single day with access to everything 24 7 you know that person person a maybe they don't gain weight maybe like I said they make up for it other ways and they eat a little more and they're still okay whereas this person person b with the genetic predisposition to that then they start to increase their weight you know like i said they might have the genetic predisposition to it so it's once again it's not necessarily that this person and this person are doing anything different so this person might be a little more predisposed to it and like i said it's not to blame it's just to say hey that could be contributing as well and we tend to think like that, that happens quite often you know in a Back in the day when food was scarce, like we didn't have as much obesity. We, we know that because like I said, until we kind of get to that perfect condition, we're like, oh, now we have excess and these genes are really good at kind of holding on to calories or, you know, decreasing the amount of calories we burn when we, when we walk, all these different things for whatever reason. We're not sure why, but there are some people who are genetically predisposed. So that's what I mean when someone has a genetic predisposition. Not that we're blaming on it, just that that plus the environment tend to lead to a higher chance of having obesity. Okay, so I kind of harped on that, and now I want to talk a little bit about screening. Like, when do we screen for obesity, and what are we, what other things are we screening for? You know, for adolescent and childhood obesity, we typically want to screen you know every year when we see them at their well child visit once a year. We're screening with screening with BMI just to kind of see and catch. Other things we want to look for, well, let's take a look here, is things like lipids. You know, lipids we're going to look at, you know, if someone's obese, we're definitely getting them checked by age 10. You know, maybe if they're just in the overweight category as well, it can kind of depend on how aggressive you are, but we're definitely going to get a lipid panel. We like a fasting lipid panel because essentially if you eat food, food can disrupt triglyceride and HDL levels. So, like, ideally, fasting. That being said, sometimes that's really inconvenient for a child. So if you've got a 10 year old there and they were eating, you can get one. And if it becomes, if it comes back normal, that's great. But if it's abnormal, then you're gonna have to go back and do a fasting one. So it really decides on what your, you know, your workflow is if, is it better to get them when they're there? Maybe they haven't been fasting, but you have a chance to get the lab. I don't know. That's totally up to, to your physician and whatnot, but for lipids wise if you're obese at age 10 for sure if you're overweight maybe um, but we're looking for that as well another thing we're gonna look for is NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, typically we're starting at age 10 as well going to get something called an alt which is a test looking at your liver like i said this is if we're at 10 with obesity kind of looking at you know these are the risk factors of what can happen if you have obesity even in childhood um, and then also diabetes you know there's other risk factors obesity um you know and excess weight gain maybe family history you'll think about screening for diabetes although that's not as hundred percent all the time but we definitely want to look on the lipids um if we are looking for diabetes the tests are typically the same as the adult we can do the you know hemoglobin a1c fasting glucose or glucose tolerance test all those different things but these are kind of things we're looking for for screening wise you know lipids are super important um like i said because it's the long-term accumulation right like if you have super high lipids as a kid it's years and years and years of exposure to those lipids that we care about right we don't care about a little you know slice of time but long term if a kid's having high lipids at age 10 man that's gonna start their clock a lot earlier than normal okay now moving on so if we've screened it we've identified it we found it how do we treat it and that's the million dollar question i don't have a good answer for that nobody has a great answer for that but we have a general framework on what we should be doing and what we're thinking about here so first of all it's gonna have to be tailored to each individual person you know like i said this is not a one-size-fits-all Everybody's different. Everybody's genes, exposures, environment—everything is different. So every you know treatment is going to have to be customized to them. You know, one thing they found is super important is something called motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing isn't when you just say, you know, you rah rah, you got this. You know, that is not it. What motivational interviewing means is you kind of talk with someone, kind of help bring them on board. You know, get them involved. So I ask, you know, when I use this in clinic, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll say, okay, like, hey, like, you know, I'll ask a question about like, you know, why do you want to lose weight? And they'll start saying, oh, for X and Y reason, you know, for my grandchildren, I want to be around for them. Okay, well, what steps can you do? And you kind of probe them and and let them figure the answer out on their own. So you're essentially just like gently guiding them. Uh, But it helps you know, patients get bought in and that seems to be really helpful. When people buy in, they feel like they're part of the plan, um, they tend to have better outcomes and more more likely gonna stick to it. And so that's a really, really important concept of this is we can't be just prescriptive saying, okay, here you go, do this. I mean, if someone's not bought in, it's gonna be you know challenging. And on top of that, you need family buy-in, right? So especially looking at kids and adolescents, like they're with their parents all the time. And you know, there's some data showing like, until like someone's like 12, they're not really gonna like think about the consequences of things they're doing in terms of the foods they're eating or, you know, having obesity or overweight. Um, it seems to be like 12 seems to be an indicator so you know that's not 100% locked in stone but really important for family to kind of be on board if family's not on a board and they're saying no nah, I'm not going to do that you think a you know a 10 year old kid's gonna be like you know what I'm the doctor told me this I'm going to do it no that's not going to happen so getting family buy-in is really really important as well okay and then next moving on here with a continued treatment the big thing is intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment so IHBLT is all throughout this clinical practice guidelines, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. That is our best supported evidence, you know, that we've found in the literature. So intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. What they mean by intense is that like, this is going to total up to like more than 26 hours over the course of anywhere between two and 12 months. And so it's not just like, Hey, a one-time counseling, like, Hey, you should consider losing weight. Like 26 hours, 26 hours of contact is super, super important. Like I said, and I want to mention too, this is the first line. We talk about the first line and I want to mention Nowhere do you hear medications mentioned in this. The first line says intensive health behavior and lifestyle therapy. So, just want to get that out there and show once again the first line is intensive lifestyle changes. Like I said, it's intense, 26 hours at least. If we can get more, the better. Should be face to face. You know, family should be involved. Multidisciplinary. So, we're talking about physician, we're talking about maybe uh, a Dietitian or a personal trainer, all, all of these different groups, psychologists, you name it, that's the, the ideal situation for this. So, this is like our ideal situation, how we treat this. That being said, it's pretty hard to do that, you know, in terms of like finding that situation. And so, that's always recommended, can have some decent improvement in BMI percentages. Um, it has been shown to can be helpful, but like I said, it can be challenging to find a situation for everyone to, to thrive in like that, to have resources, and so like I said, it's not ideal necessarily, I get that, but that's what we recommend first line. So moving on after that, there are some other options. There are some medications, there are surgical options. Um, these are a possibility, like I said. I will say once again, these weren't even mentioned till like page 60. So page 60 in this document, this 100-page document, page 60 said, hey, okay, they just beat us to death with uh, you know lifestyle, lifestyle, and said, hey, these are options, because once again, This is something I want to talk about. If you've tried intensive lifestyle therapies and you had no improvement, like, I I think it's wrong if we just say, okay, like, well, that's it. You know, there's no other options for you. I mean, we know what's going to happen. We know if someone has chronic obesity, like the issues they're going to have down the line, like the, you know, metabolic issues they're going to have, you know and as kids that's just going to come earlier and earlier in life and we want to avoid that so we know there's a harm there if there's a chance then we can stop that negate that and do something you know on top of our lifestyle stuff to prevent that then i think it's worth looking into it might not be the right fit for everybody but it's definitely something to look into and so once again i think it's kind of out of scope outside of the scope of this one i'm not going to talk about specific medications there are different medications you know like the GOP ones i'll probably do a different talk about that um that work this seem to be okay with children who have obesity, it seems to work pretty well for them. They can have some decent losses. Um, and also bariatric surgery is, is a potential option as well. Obviously that's usually the last line for everybody. And I think that's very appropriate. Um, but that's also a potential option as well. Cause for me, once again, it's all about harm reduction. I know people will scream on the internet and say like, it's lifestyle. They need it. But okay. Just imagine you're a person, like I said, with, low socioeconomic status, low health literacy, no access to fresh food, no transportation. Like you want that person in there, I want you to go up to that person and tell them like, you're just not trying hard enough. Like you're just not trying hard enough, it's your fault. I mean, like I said, the deck is stacked against them. And so I want to figure out how do we have, you know, how can we help these people? What options do we have that use all the available evidence and all available tools to kind of help them get to the, where they want to go? You know, once again, it's that natural fallacy, that like, oh, I want to do it the natural way. like. While I do it the natural way. That's always my preferred route. Like you'll you've heard me say that time and time again on podcasts and videos. It's like I will try to not do medications if I don't need to, but I will use them when I need to because I want to help people. And at the end of the day, if I need to help these people by giving them medication or they want a medication, that's great. You know, let's say someone says, Hey, I'd actually prefer a medication. Like, I actually like I've tried this, it's just really challenging. Like, can I get some help? Like, if someone's asking for it, what do you like? I mean, like, we're gonna not help them. Like, to me, it's just crazy. And so, you know, it's 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 tough. I understand you know, a lot of times it's come from people who aren't necessarily um, in a clinical capacity, like in terms of someone who can't prescribe that. So I know like my bias to that is like, I can do that. So it's an option for me, other people who can't. And so I recognize that. And I recognize as a physician, uh, I can be biased towards that as well. But like I said, I wanna have all the tools available in my tool belt and kind of talk with the patient and help decide what's the next best step. But um, all I care about is getting a good outcome for them. And so just kind of wrapping up here, a couple take home points is once again, as you can see, this is super complex and this is super challenging. We're not going to figure this out overnight. It's becoming, you know, a bigger, bigger issue with children and adults. It's something that, you know, we need to figure out sooner rather than later, or else it's going to lead to lots and lots of issues down the line. Um, But the important point is, like, this needs to be individualized to each person. How we treat this is going to look different between me and you, right? Like, we might have different motivations, different environmental factors, all those different things. So each one has to get an individualized treatment for the best success. And then, once again, we're focusing on lifestyle therapy. We're working on the things, you know, controlling things we can control on. We're going through the necessary nine I talk about here, you know, I think we have a good chance of being really healthy and a healthy body weight. Um, but if we can't, there's other options as well, but we're really going to focus on lifestyle. So, and so that's it for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening to me. Like I said, if you want to get this clinical practice guideline, it is a free. It's available to everyone. I'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, it's a good read. It took a little while, that's for sure. So if you want to just listen to my summary, that's fine too. Um, but like I said, it's available for you. But if you are made it this, this far, thank you so much for sticking with me. I appreciate it. Um, if you found this helpful, um, if you share this with someone, that would mean the world. If you you know liked, commented, subscribed, or gave a five star rating, that would mean the world as well. Uh, helps you know more people find this. So once again, thanks so much for stop in and really appreciate it. Now get off the computer and go have a great day. Thanks. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.